Welcome to the very first episode of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. I'm your host, James Toth. It's now a fact taken for granted by most reasonable people that works of art cannot be held responsible for antisocial or degenerate behavior. The moral panic of the recent past over everything from the 1953 film The Wild One to Elvis's pelvic gyrations to the pornographic lewdness of two live crew lyrics and the vilification of heavy metal during the satanic panic scapegoating of the mid-1980s now seems quaint, backward, and absurd. Like phrenology or bloodletting, the idea that something is seemingly innocuous as popular music or video games, movies, or television, could provoke a person to act immorally, or even be driven to commit murder or suicide, has been largely debunked as a ludicrous relic of an earlier, less evolved age. And yet, I happen to begrudgingly side with the hysterics here, at least in theory. Music's role in my life has always been that of a seductive Pied Piper that tantalizes me to want to live out its ideas and ideals. I'm the rare person who actually believes that heavy metal does make you want to sacrifice animals to Satan, that gangster rap does make you want to do drive-bys, and that jazz music does make you want to shoot dope. I believe this because music has made me want to do all of those things. Perhaps I'm just made of weaker stuff than those who are able to resist these kinds of fantasies, and yet, despite being a person of what I would consider reasonable intelligence, I have discovered no greater lure to a path of ruin or redemption, than music's siren song. As music meets all the criteria of a religious system, complete with orthodoxies, prayers, deities, customs, rituals, and sacred texts, this story, my story, is that of a fanatical zealot. Every memorable episode of my life is connected in some way to music. As a child, my basis for whether or not a given activity was cool was typically predicated on its relation to what I will call its musicness, however peripheral to actual music that relation might be. Tennis was cool because Metallica's Lars Ulrich played it. Working on cars was cool because it was the preferred off-season hobby of Dawkin frontman Don Dawkin. Fencing was definitely cool because Iron Maiden had an awesome song called The Duelists. Music also made me not only want to embrace recreational activities, but entire ideologies, lifestyles, and belief systems. The crunchy metal core of Earth Crisis made me want to burn down vivisection labs and flush my parents' cigarettes down the toilet. The music video for the Pet Shop Boys' West End Girls made me daydream of being English, gay, and fashionable. The voice of Mahalia Jackson remains for me the most persuasive case I've heard for the existence of a higher power. As late as 1996, when I was old enough to know better, my college roommates and I tried in vain to develop a taste for Michelob, strictly because it was reputed to be the beer of choice of our hero Neil Young. Of course, these irrational fantasies are ephemeral, in most cases taking the form of a trance that lasts only as long as the duration of a given piece of music. And yet the fact remains that music's ability to make me want to actually consider altering any number of fundamental things about my life, even if only superficially, is evidence of some very arcane and primeval power. 
Regrettably, most of my early lessons in sexual education were learned by listening to records, specifically to albums by artists like Guns N' Roses and N.W.A. This means I learned from hair metal sleaze balls, chauvinistic rappers, and a handful of misogynistic comedians some supremely warped lessons on both the mechanics and politics of sex. This resulted in numerous misunderstandings. For instance, having learned that a condom was a plastic thing a man placed on his penis before sex, I for years labored under the delusion that a prophylactic was constructed of molded hard plastic, something like one of those travel toothbrush caddies, and I drove myself crazy trying to figure out what pleasure anyone could possibly derive by wearing such a thing. Luckily, most of these lessons were unlearned by the time I discovered punk, which offered a timely corrective. Years before I discovered the progressive politics espoused by fanzines like Maximum Rock and Roll, Punk Planet, and Heart Attack, or was exposed to riot girl bands like Bratmobile, Team Dresh, Huggy Bear, and Bikini Kill, I loved the Fugazi song's suggestion and reclamation, the lyrics of which made the concept of gender equality seem to me not so much a radical ideology as an incontrovertible, self-evident truth. By the time I was a teenager, the average cost of a CD was about $15. Because of this, the number 15 remains to this day a magical one for me, the number by which I usually decide whether or not to purchase a given thing. For example, if I spend $15 on a mediocre meal, I lament about the album I might have bought instead. $90 for a new pair of boots? These old ones work just fine, despite the tear in the sole where the rain seeps through, and there just so happens to be six CDs in my virtual shopping cart at boomcat.com. A $60 rug? Why, that's four CDs. Why the hell do I need a rug? Anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss writes that because music is the only language with the contradictory attributes of being at once intelligible and untranslatable, the musical creator is a being comparable to the gods. Now, I acknowledge to a point that the deification of artists can be a foolish and even dangerous practice. And yet, in my mind, Willie Nelson has never taken a shit, Chuck D has never dunked an Oreo, and Glenn Danzig is nine feet tall. Many of my close friends will be surprised at the idea of my doing a podcast about my adventures and music obsession, because those who know me best are aware of a handicap that should make such an undertaking impossible. Namely, my notoriously poor and often unreliable memory. Given the scope of the project in question, this liability should by all rights place into question my integrity as a narrator. However, this fact of my poor memory only serves to support my premise, that music has left an indelible mark on my psyche, granting me a kind of extremely selective total recall. While it is true that I've failed, after 10 years of marriage, to memorize my wife's cell phone number, often forget my car's year of manufacture, and remain unable to pilot myself to the local post office without the aid of a GPS, I do remember the names of each member of Faster Pussycat, every word to Jeru the Damages come clean, and the number of times the Grateful Dead performed Jack Straw in 1977. That would be 25 times. At some point over the course of our marriage, my wife Leah has learned to ingeniously exploit this aspect of my personality by concocting a foolproof strategy for rousing me from sleep. She quizzes me about music. What kind of guitar does Johnny Winter play? Where did Lou Reed grow up? 
What really happens to Rail's brother at the end of The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway? Though I quickly caught on to her ruse, I still find myself powerless to resist answering these trivial questions, despite the knowledge that they are merely designed to trick me into getting out of bed, and that Leah has little to no interest in my responses. I also remember a telling incident in the early days of our relationship. We were driving somewhere in the rain, and I kept replaying the New Grape Twins' I Got Your Ice Cold New Grape over and over again on the car stereo. I got a new grape, nice and fine. The ring around the bottle is a ginger wine. I got your ice cold new grape. I got a new grape, nice and fine. Got plenty of invitations, but did none like mine. I got your ice cold new while it played, I insisted on explaining and over-explaining the greatness of the 1927 song in that obnoxious way that male music fans tend to do when they have a captive audience. Now, if I acted this way today, Leah would have no problem telling me to fuck right off, but at this early stage in our courtship, we were still trying to figure each other out. I remember catching a glimpse of her expression after the ninth or 10th replay of the New Grape Twins, it wasn't an expression of annoyance or rage or even frustration, but the face of a kidnappee, a terrified hostage carefully trying to avoid doing something that might escalate a desperate and perilous situation. Upon noticing this expression, I experienced a moment of clarity. I've blown it, I thought to myself. I've just revealed myself as a maniac loser to this brilliant, beautiful girl I'm falling in love with. This sudden self-awareness felt very much like the frightening disassociation you feel when you're in a conversation with someone when you are really, really high, and you instantly realize, panic-stricken, that you can't account for the last 10 minutes of the conversation. Where was my mind? Where have my eyes been pointed this whole time? What the hell are we even talking about? Getting on a rant about music can truly feel like a kind of demonic possession. Back to my poor memory. As a somewhat obsessive documentarian, I have throughout my life compulsively kept diaries and recordings. Like the tragic titular character in Samuel Beckett's Crap's Last Tape, I've often relied heavily on my personal archive of cassettes, notebooks, photographs, and ephemera to jog my faulty memory, and these archives have proved invaluable to the creation of this podcast. I appear to have a clearer memory for events of the distant past than of the recent past, which I understand is fairly common. Though I'm quite terrible at recalling exact locations and dates, I can often recount even the most mundane situations and events with vivid clarity, especially those that pertain to music trivia. I still remember where I was when I learned that Shock G and Humpty Hump were the same person, because it was like finding out all over again that there was no Santa Claus. The following episodes will detail many of the pivotal experiences of my life as they relate, in some way, to the discovery of music, and the paths to which these discoveries led. In some ways, this podcast is a generational portrait of a very common experience, that of a music-obsessed, middle-class kid of the 80s, raised on full house, mall pretzels, and chlorinated pool water. In another way, it's the testimony of a historical witness. Both the New York City and the music business as I knew them during my formative years are swiftly vanishing. These developments have been unnerving to me not for their inevitability, but for the suddenness and speed at which they've taken place. The first season of this podcast will chronicle, broadly, 
both pre-internet music fandom and the largely pre-gentrified pre-9-11 New York where it occurred. Think of it as my attempt at a sort of brief cultural history. I've chosen to take this task upon myself and relay these tales through the prism of my own experiences because I've come to understand over the course of many years, many travels, and many conversations that these experiences are not especially common. The first dozen or so episodes will cover the period beginning with my first cognitive awareness of music through my adolescent obsessions with heavy metal and hip-hop and pivotal encounters with punk and hardcore, as well as some of the pathos, innocence, juvenile delinquency, humiliation, and folly I experienced as a child growing up on Staten Island in an Italian-American working-class family. Throughout, I will provide occasional audio documentation of some of these episodes when such things are available. There will even be a few explosions. Later on, should there be another season of this podcast, I'll provide remembrances of my years as a musician and various tales from the recording studios in the road. Music, however, will remain the main character. I acknowledge that music ultimately is a form of entertainment, even when it is also art and I probably take it all a bit too seriously. Leah and I have what I would consider a fairy tale romance. In ten years, we've never had a single argument about the kind of things that tend to destroy a lot of couples. Money, sex, in-laws, religion, careers. We have, however, had some doozies on road trips, where all of our worst arguments have taken place, due entirely to my one-track musical mind. See, despite, or maybe because of, my many years of touring and traveling around the country, I really hate driving. This is fortunate, because my wife is one of those weird people who prefers to be at the wheel and in control. Because of this, Leah always does about 90% of the driving. My job is to provide the music to soundtrack our many roving adventures. At least that's how I see it. In advance of any family road trip lasting more than 30 minutes, I will dutifully create a playlist taking into account the flow of one song into another, even going as far as to note BPMs to match tempos and moods. Like every hopeless music nerd, I take great pride in having mastered the art of the mixtape. With a concentration in seamless transitions, I can get from, say, Bill Monroe to Gil Scott Heron in just 25 songs without it sounding jarring or strange. While a white-knuckled Leah attempts to navigate a snowy, poorly-lit mountain road, narrowly avoids getting rear-ended by a tailgating trucker, or squints through a downpour to locate an exit off the interstate, I will insist she note Adrian Ballou's guitar tone on a particularly tasty live rendition of King Crimson's Elephant Talk, or demand she pay attention to the exhilarating way the second bass part kicks in a third of the way into Greg Perry's I'll Be Coming Back. When it comes to music, I can be truly insufferable, so I hope you'll bear with me. Anyway, I like to think there are others like me, in fact, I know there are others like me because a lot of them have crashed on my couch. Maybe you'll hear some of yourself reflected in these episodes. My hope is that this podcast reaches those with whom I share this strange affliction. Those who will just as readily curl up in bed to read a CD booklet's liner notes as they will a book or a magazine. Those young couples whose list of baby names for a prospective son or daughter must always include the names of rock stars, jazz musicians, and favorite songs. Those who, upon viewing a breathtaking painting, can't help imagining, maybe in spite of themselves and maybe a tad ashamed, that there's an album tucked inside, and wondering what that album might sound like. 
those who can still rattle off from memory the complete mailing addresses of long-gone punk distribution houses, those who might owe their love of jazz to a Charlie Brown Christmas and the funky post-bop heard on station ID bumpers during children's programming on public broadcasting. Maybe you too have spent precious time on Earth debating the relative merits of Caninus, the hardcore band featuring two actual pit bulls, over rival band Hatebeak, a group fronted by an actual parrot. Maybe you too, because of song lyrics, mispronounced for years the words Taoist, Nabokov, or Crowley. Maybe you agree that if we woke up tomorrow to find we'd gone completely deaf, we'd continue purchasing records as a palliative, relying on the bank of sounds already in our heads to imagine what the music might sound like as we gazed yearningly at their sleeves. Or maybe that sounds unrelatable, weird, and insane. Today, August 24th, 2020, sales of physical media are at an all-time low and trending downward. In most quarters, the notion of recorded music as a commodity has become devalued, its attendant rituals desacralized. It's not my intention to mount yet another crusade against illegal downloading, streaming, or any other modern or future methods of digital music consumption. Rather, I would like for this podcast to serve as a record of a time that to someone born after the Clinton administration might as well be ancient Greece. To anyone born after, say, 1992, who has only known and perhaps taken for granted the convenience of a diluvial stream of free music on demand, it may seem quaint and even ridiculous to learn about how my nose was broken in a dispute with my best friend over a cassette by a rap group, or how the failure to procure an album by a death metal band moved me to shed actual tears in the middle of a crowded shopping plaza, or how eating gas station taquitos and sleeping in gnarly places in order to play music to very small groups of people seemed like a worthwhile way to spend my 20s. I hope this podcast expresses accurately the sacrifices many of us made to acquire not only physical media at a time when the demand for it was at least equal to its supply, but also its well-concealed secrets. I expect some of you might marvel at the extraordinary lengths some of us went merely to feed this all-consuming habit, and I hope it helps some of you feel a little less alone. Welcome to the Toth Zone, and thank you for listening. I hope you stick around. Please subscribe to be alerted about new episodes, and please tell your friends. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackTote. As this is my first attempt at a podcast, I hope you'll send me some feedback. For those of you interested in donating to the show, I hope to have a Patreon page up soon, so please stay tuned. See you next time. This is The Tote Zone. The Tote Zone.